The sauce maven is a pioneer in leadership development, and food and cooking are in her arsenal of tools. And her cooking is the perfect example of how the American palate changes and develops. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Natalie Kang, author of Egg Rolls and Sweet Tea, Asian-Inspired Southern Style. Natalie is a pioneer in leadership development. She's a pioneer in leadership development. She is founder and CEO of Global Hearth, leveraging food and culture through its Cooking Up a Better World platform. Known as the Sauce Maven, she has a line of natural bottle sauces. Welcome, Natalie. I don't know how you have time to do anything. (laughs) I don't know how you have time to do anything, right? So I think we're both, yeah, I think that's how women are, right? I agree with you. I think that we have a lot on our plates, so to speak. So, I, there's so much to talk about. I am a recovering lawyer, so that's my education. And I I was a JAG officer. I did all kinds of different kinds of practicing of law. And I never, ever forgot that what my real passion was food and culture. And I think that in many ways that you kind of went down a certain path in your education. And I want to know how you took that path and then turned it into what you did. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the program. Ni hao, y'all. <laughs> this book is really a, a personal collection drawn from my own palette and my experiences in the Deep South. You know, growing up as a Georgia native, I have very joyful experiences of, you know, sucking nectar out of honeysuckle and playing along the muscadine vines that my father built, going to the county fairs fishing and swimming at Lake Alatoona. So those are the experiences that I draw from in my childhood. And then later on, I, in my journey, as I left Georgia and then went to Vassar and then discovered all these other new foods and friendships from, goodness, from hummus to jambalaya to ratatouille. I mean, those were new things at the time for me. I discovered a passion and curiosity for the parallels and intersections of not only food and tradition and culture, but also who we are as Southerners, who we are as Americans, you know, the the prism of food and foodways and those traditions. And my experience in this navigating the socio-cultural mashup of being, you know, Southern and female and um, four foot 11, (laughs) it was, I had a, I had to develop a passion for grits, but also to have grit as well. And so as I then went into and pursued my graduate degree in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, I was drawing from these experiences and it became clear to me as I was working with a lot of teams and projects around how can we work better together? How can we get along? How can we be more productive? That the power of food 
was something that was quite magical. You know, we would try so hard and spend so many hours and have so many facilitators come in to help us work better together, be more productive, recruit diverse teams. And then when we would go out, out to eat over food or drink or potluck, you know, all these barriers came down, the conversations flowed and we all got along, you know? And so that power and magic of food around sharing, around breaking bread, breaking egg rolls together was really what propelled me and motivated me to, you know, write the book. I had wonderful mentors along the way that said, you should write down some of these experiences. And what you love doing is bringing folks together to actually, you know, make the world a better place, but also to develop some of the leadership qualities that we see being kind of the basic tenets of ESG, of high-performance teams, of collaboration. So do you think that it's important for people to actually cook together or is it the eating together that is the important part? Either both and and. (laughs) I think it's the interaction, which is what I have the most fun with. I mean, obviously you can do it virtual. We pivoted to that or you can do it in person. But I think the key part is the experience, the interaction, because when you have the experience, then you have conversation. And when you have conversation, there's an opportunity to find common ground. And when there's that opportunity, even if there's disagreement, right, you're going to have different points of view, even if you disagree about the best barbecue style, right? I've seen people get really intense um, about that. You still can build the, the friendship and the understanding. And when we have commonality, then there is more empathy and more trust. And when we have that, then the door is open, right? It's just a wonderful gateway to um, either a friendship or a collaboration or an alliance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how big is your team? How and how how much are you doing that on a day to day basis? Well, I have uh, corporate teams and organizations that call me every day almost to Uh help them with different events and I customize them all. So it's a little bit more time consuming on the front end and also in the delivery, but I find that that's most productive and satisfying for them when they can come to me and get consultation, not only about the event, but they come to me with an opportunity. They say, well, we have some new clients or we have a new crop of associates. Like I work with a lot of law firms or it's a board retreat. Um, where we are trying to do a little bit of strategic planning. And because of my background in not only the the public sector, the private sector, you know, working with projects, working within government, then I can draw from that experience and consulting and help them not only have a fun, memorable, interactive event, usually that involves different elements, but I can advise them on actually some of their goals and, and values. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And there's just nothing like sitting down together at at a table that can just break down barriers more than anything. There's a wonderful book that was written about um, Churchill's use of food during World War II, which I just think is fascinating, where he would actually, because they were having so much trouble with food in England, he would like, he would beg American um, ship captains who were close 
and get food from them so that he would be able to have uh, meetings that were over some kind of a, a dinner and uh, use that as a way to make people, as you say, break down barriers, to relax, to not just be so much on guard. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful tool, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're more open to the people. Uh, we're more open to the food. We're more open to listening and pushing our boundaries, you know, maybe taking up a new challenge, doing something that's out of our comfort zone. So in many ways, it's actually the, I had the opportunity to redefine kind of the the tenets of leadership and leadership development. And that was very exciting to be able to draw from my multi-sector background to do that and see that make a difference from, you know, from young people, uh, from schools to boardrooms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the sauce maven. So tell me Mm -hmm. about that and how did you decide to actually create bottle sauces, as opposed to just develop a recipe for various sauce for people to duplicate themselves? It was really quite organic and personal. For example, I didn't go to college, right, saying I'm going to be the sauce maven, I'm going to make my own sauce one. I actually went saying, I want to make a difference, right? I want to see how I can I can fit in this crazy world and, and make it a better place. But this, the sauce adventure was really just opening up my fridge and seeing an entire, almost door, right? An entire like shell, different aisle, uh, opening up my door and then seeing an entire lineup of sauce bottles. Right. My entire fridge was almost filled with sauce bottles and realizing that not one of them really one bottle captured kind of the flavors of my childhood, of my favorite, just kind of flavor profiles of sweet and sour or what I remember was the fresh tomatoes that my grandmother would have from the garden. And we put in a sugar vinegar brine and maybe with a touch of sesame oil. So I realized that not one bottle kind of captured my favorite flavors of mm-hmm. the food and dishes growing up. And so I kind of set out to let my taste buds take the lead and fill the gap. And that's how I started this kind of convoluted experience. I mean, it was quite painstaking to get all the fresh ingredients. And I think once you do the home cooking, you realize how the sauces bring everything together and actually how complicated it can be to get the right balance and how many fresh ingredients it takes to, to make a good sauce. So many uh, ingredients and chopping and shopping all into one bottle. Mm-hmm. And so then when I was already teaching the different cooking classes, doing the the team building and, and we would do the Asian supermarket tours, you know, there's another whole sauce aisle, right? So there's just so many different bottles out there just on soy sauce, for example. Mm -hmm. And so folks would literally stop me in my shopping trip. I would just be grocery shopping for my own dinner. And they would stop me on the soy sauce aisle and be curious and ask me, which sauce do you, which soy sauce brand is better? And how do I pick out the natural and this and that? And so I ended up spending my time on the on the sauce aisle, dressing aisle, kind of almost like holding court right there while I was supposed to be doing my grocery shopping. So between my refrigerator door, you know, with all the sauce bottles and now the aisles of sauce bottles that you can see, um, 
and the classes where I would teach people to make these sauces from scratch, you mm-hmm. know, right. I would say just a little bit of this and a little bit of this and you chop this and you ginger and onion, garlic and Vidalia onion and all this, and you stick it all in a bottle. And, you know, there, I don't do a whole lot of measuring. I'm a little bit more artistic, right. So I'd be mm-hmm. this and this and this. And at the end of it, they're like, Oh my God, that was a lot of work. Could it, could you just put it in a bottle or can we just have your bottle blend that you brought from home, you know? And so that was like, Hmm all right, let me figure out how to do this because I didn't go to school for it. Right. Right. And then I just started. Yep. I started just experimenting in my kitchen and thinking about all the favorite flavors, you know, and I came up with sweet chili peach, which is the, the quintessential kind of fruity, tangy, zesty flavors that we love a lot as a dressing or as a marinade. And the soy ginger Vidalia was next because everyone was wanting something easier to make mm. a stir fry, right? You kind of come home, you might be tired, you might have kids to take care of and and you might want to eat healthy with sure. vegetables. But the stir fry sauce is really what brings it together as a nice symphony. But it actually is, is harder than you think to make a really good stir fry sauce. So I set out to put all these different ingredients. That's the most complicated one actually, put it all in one bottle. So I call them recipes in a bottle. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, out of the baseline is the Asian barbecue teriyaki pineapple, which is a family favorite. The kids love it on everything chicken. I think the parents come up to me and say, I'm just going to take this bottle because Johnny will eat anything with it. <laughs> that's always great. <laughs> right. So that's really how it started quite organically and out of, um, I guess, interest and demand. And so did how hard was it to scale it so that it wasn't 10 bottles, but it was hundreds of bottles? Mm-hmm. Was that a difficulty? It was definitely a learning curve. Everything along this route was a learning curve. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you don't go to school. I didn't go to school learning how to do this. So it's, it was, um, I was lucky to have some of the local state organizations, right? Mm -hmm. The business development, Mm -hmm. uh, economic development, the universities have Mm -hmm. resources and I encourage folks who are interested in this realm, whether it's a sauce or making your own jelly or another artisan food product to take advantage of these wonderful government resources, sometimes associated with the universities. And so that's how I learned was going through these community resources and learning um, what you could make at home, what you would want to make in a commercial kitchen or a community kitchen and so on. And where do you do your labels and um, everything. Right. And all all of the requirements for labeling and, Mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that all of that is accurate for whatever level of production you have and whatever. I mean, I just think that that's uh, it's amazing to me that, that people do go beyond just the sort of uh, farmer's market level of production, because I think it's just very daunting to, to have to produce on that level. And to do the market testing. I mean, literally we started at the farmer's markets, one bottle, 10 bottles, you know, hundred bottles, and you, you get valuable feedback and you get, to meet wonderful people. And that's how you meet the community, both other vendors, as well as folks who shop there. You listen, these are your consumers. And it was just invaluable. I love going to the 
farmer's market, just invaluable experience, but also just a fun, fun mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. So support your local farmer's market. I mean, that's where it's at. That's where we would see all the fresh vegetables. You, you know, what's coming in season. You, you meet other artisans, entrepreneurs, you help kind of lift each other up. And then there are days where it's just pouring rain or <laughs> other days where it's 90 degrees heat, right. Mm-hmm. And everyone is wilting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some days where folks are so busy, right. You're kind of looking after each other's kids. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the farmer's market is a, a great, great place. Absolutely, I agree with you. All right, so Georgia Grown was a, a big factor, a, a big resource for me. Groups like there are culinary groups um, of women, especially that I connect to, like Les Dames de Scoffier, Slow Food International, Slow Food Atlanta, Let's Talk Women. So I was very fortunate and I'm still part of these groups. And you know, now this is, what motivates me to also give back because they do a lot of wonderful community work and philanthropic work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's one more example of women getting together and getting stuff done for sure. Exactly. I mean, during the pandemic, you know, when all of our events were canceled, everything right was canceled from the markets to our tours. Then I was asked to serve on the governor's health task force. And then I was inspired by not only all the essential frontline workers, but we put out a corporate matching initiative and all the neighbors rallying to support local and small businesses and matching our contributions. That was very inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. So let's talk about your book. I'm really excited. I I love the back cover. I love this sort of, um, cover with the green plate and the all the uh, deviled eggs on there it's just so perfectly southern it's just uh, you know i just thought oh my god this is just this is wonderful and um there's so much in the book that is it's just mouthwatering basically to read the recipes um and i i just love the the pictures and the way it's all put together and all of the stories that you tell in the book. How did you decide, I'm sure that in your personal collection of recipes that you've come up with and that you've cooked on a regular basis, there is more than what you have in this book. So how did you decide what to include? Was it based on just being able to cover things in multiple categories like vegetables and seafood and, you know, that kind of thing in that traditional recipe book way, that cookbook way, or was there some other kind of way that you organized it in your head? It's probably a combination. I mean, I was, I was um, thinking about my favorite foods to start mm-hmm. off. Right. So <laughs> Maybe the next book will all be about sauces, all about egg rolls, um, all about sweet tea, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, egg rolls and sweet tea are two of my favorite foods, but also they they kind of represent who I am. So uh-huh. it was just a natural title. And the other dishes were, a lot of them were kind of comfort foods that we or I, you know, make at home and enjoy at home, but added a little twist. Uh-huh. Right, because of my being a, a native of the deep south and of Georgia, I had a lot of just add-ins because of the local vegetables or a little twist, you know, a daily onion, or you know, you couldn't always find 
the different Asian ingredients. So you would just substitute. So that's really how it came about. And I was introduced to the biodynamic farms when I was up north. My time in New England was wonderful because of the the farms that are plentiful there. So I got introduced to new vegetables from the rutabagas to the beets to what do you do with a whole bag of okra to all the brassicas and and the seasonality of, of the different vegetables. And so I'm drawing upon those things as well of what do you do when you have you know, the winter share and a whole bag of vegetables that mm-hmm. are filled with, you know, beets and cabbage. Right. <laughs> so then you get creative mm-hmm. when you fill your egg roll and right. the fried chicken egg roll and the bacon and collards egg rolls. I mean, those are really just because those are the vegetables growing out of the garden uh-huh. or coming in your your farm bag. So, and then the other ones might be a little healthy twist because I had tons of food allergies when I was growing up, when I was little. I read about that. I did. And so maybe I'm just trying to make up for that now. So I did also um, go through a vegetarian period in my life where over 10 years I was vegetarian because I had just learned about the impacts of the raising meat, you know, on the Mm -hmm. environment. I was just learning this was in college. And so I decided to try to eat you know, mostly plant, plant-based. Mm-hmm. And so some of the, some of the recipes reflect that time in my life, right. Where I was discovering the community farms, or I was discovering being a vegetarian and trying to um, make my favorite dishes, not only in the restaurants, but at home into vegetarian versions. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that, for example, the Mushu burrito, right. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and the other some of the other recipes are because I was allergic or couldn't eat, right? That product when I was younger, like dairy. And then I would try to put a healthy twist on it. You know, later on when I could eat ice cream, like the gotcha matcha ice cream pie, I would put my own healthy version on it. So you could eat your pie and have it too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I was just trying to make up for those days where I could not eat anything. And as the my other nickname is raccoon foodie um <laughs> trying to eat everything means you have to put your own it could be fusion confusion twist on it but in the end i wanted to taste good so i made sure mm-hmm. that it passed the taste test and that is my hope too is that the readers and listeners will make their own versions i hope that they will become their own supper table favorites but that they can add their own version of creativity and become their own authentic. So you were describing your sauce making technique, which is a little of this and a little of that, and probably um, often not, obviously not when you're actually producing your line, but if you were doing the sauce for yourself, um, you might say, well, I don't have this. And so I'm going to substitute this other thing because I don't want to stop and go to the grocery or whatever right now. And so it changes it every time you make it a little bit. Um, so it sounds like you aren't always a um, a good measurer is what I'm saying. Um, and so, and I am a horrible measurer. So I'm always looking at recipes going, how do they know that it's just this exact amount? Because my way of thinking is, let's we were, you were talking about tomatoes before. And 
sometimes tomatoes are sweeter. My background is Sicilian. And so my grandmother used to always say, um, you have to taste the tomato sauce because sometimes the tomatoes are sweeter, sometimes they're more acid, and then you have to kind of adjust the flavor. So you can't give an exact um, an exact number of teaspoons of this or that because it might it might depend. So my grandmother never put sugar in her tomato sauce, not ever. She thought if it needs to be sweetened in some way because it's this these tomatoes are too tart or too acid, she would use grated carrot. And so the sweetness from the carrot would um, give a certain sweetness to the tomato sauce, but not taste like carrots because it was just not enough carrot in there to carry the day. But you have to taste it and decide, does it need one carrot? Does it need two carrots? You know, and so you, it's really hard to tell somebody um, exactly how to make it. So did you kind of feel that? Was that part of any pressure to you um, on when you were doing this? Well, when you teach as many events and classes as I have, you are forced to give the measurements. So early on, I had to do that, right? When you're teaching cooking classes or um, I'm also a health educator and giving advice on healthy substitutions, mm -hmm. then you get accustomed to being yeah. creative and meeting people where they are, right? Because people are coming at this from many different, not only levels of confidence, right? In terms of experience, but also different kinds of uh, personal dietary needs or restrictions or preferences. So it's always a balance. Uh, and I try to present folks with the, maybe the traditional way of making it, the conventional way. And then you can offer up some different substitutions. Like if you are vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free or soy-free or low fat, no fat, then you could do some of these variations. And then I've been taught by many of my listeners and, and my fans, like different new creative ideas, which I never thought of. So it's very fun that way to have the exchange, you know, how can you use fruit, like you said, fruit or vegetable, and huh? even the definition of fruit and vegetable, right, varies by culture. Right. So, you know, tomato is always a fruit in our house, right? So it's like, hey, for dessert, you're going to have like a, you know, a tomato, <laughs> a bowl <laughs> of tomatoes. And we're like, uh, how come they have ice cream and we have tomatoes, you know? Um, but, you know, okay, we, we, grew up healthy, right? So right. thankful for that. But yes, it was a little bit hard wondering, like seeing other people's lunch bags. And basically I was a school cafeteria kid, right? So uh, my mother was a full-time school teacher. So I did not have like homemade lunch bags and we weren't at home making dumplings all the time. My parents were professionals working and that's where the one minute stir fry came about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my mom was just trying to make something healthy for us to eat after she worked a long day. So I think you're right. It's fun and it's also an opportunity um, for someone like me who is more comfortable kind of pivoting and being versatile and following my palate to be able to share uh, different tips. Like tomato is actually a wonderful addition to many things, obviously, like a sauce, but it's a wonderful addition to stir fry. Mm. And so we have an okra and tomato stir fry because it adds flavor without adding sodium. 
Right. So that's one of my most popular tips when I do the health education and then the addition of fruit as well. And sometimes people might not think of fruit in stir fry. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of fun to be able to brainstorm these different alternatives and then have people run with it. And then they come back around and tell me something that they tried and they're very excited about it. And it's just fun to hear about it. Yes. I also think that your food is fun in the way you present it on the plate. I don't know if you did all of the styling yourself in the book, but oh, I, I love, I, I was just trying to look for it while you were talking and I'm not finding it, but those, those pink um, the, you know, when you color your dough with beet juice and other colored juices, I just love the way that looks. It's just beautiful. It makes you smile, right? Yes. That's part of the does. goal. That's part of the yes. goal is to find yes. joy, just to find joy and ourselves in the food. And it's, it makes me smile as well. Just kind of talking about it, eating it. And I see the smiles that it brings to folks. And it's just the most wonderful job in the world to be able to do that. I feel very fortunate and lucky. And I did have a very good team. And I'm, I'm appreciative of the photography magic that Deborah brought to it. And I did have Angela helped with the styling. So it takes a team, it takes a village. So one more recipe I wanna to talk to you about is the Vindaloo inspired Ratatouille Ziti. That is like this great mashup. <laughs> I just love it. And it's, I mean, I, I made it and it's really wonderful. So it's a great, it, it's a, it's a great recipe, but just when you read the title, you just think, oh my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is, this is just bringing all these ideas together, but it also tells you how food is so malleable and that we actually, our food is more connected than people think, even if it's presented in a different way or it, that, that that's where the cultural part comes in is in the way it's presented. But so often, you know, somebody else might make matchstick cut vegetables and you're making more cubed vegetables, but it's the same vegetable and it's going to bring a really similar flavor to whatever it is you're making. And so that this, this recipe, I just think is brilliant. I love it. So much. I'm so tickled pink <laughs> that you made it. And the, the food and the dishes really reflect us, right? They say a lot about us more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And the dish that you mentioned is, is funny. The ratatouille has the funny story of me being ratatouilled out because I had never had ratatouille growing up in Smyrna, Georgia. Yeah. It's not on the menu. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so when I went up to Vassar and we had a, a wonderful cafeteria, uh -huh. uh, but ratatouille appeared uh, more than once. <laughs> and uh -huh. Uh -huh. I was like, well, you know, I think I'm going to add some of my own spices and flavors and seasonings. And that's how it was born. And then I was meeting different people from different backgrounds that, you know, from India, from uh, different parts of the United States, from uh -huh. other cultures and traditions, and they had their own fusion stories. And it was just really fun to be mm -hmm. able to um, 
to be able to make friendships over food, through the food, and then just be able to enjoy it all together at the table. Yes, yes, yes. So tell us, where can we get the book? How can we get in touch with you? Tell us all about that. Well, you can get more information at globalhearth.com. And I am the Sauce Maven on the social media. So IG, Facebook, the Sauce Maven. And we have a new initiative that I'm excited to unveil, which is called the, the Cookbook Collective. And it's gift one, get one. So during the pre-sale, I wanted to give folks and I wanted to be able to support other women authors and local businesses. So I created, I curated some cookbooks from other authors and I'm gifting you a book. When you gift my book, you are gifted another book from my cookbook collective. It's a way, um, my way of being able to support other authors and It is a promotion that's on the website at globalheart.com. And you can also order the sauces, my award-winning sauces online as well. And we do have them in some of the Whole Foods markets and Kroger stores and independent boutiques. Well, it sounds like, once again, I'll say it, you don't have time to even sit down and eat yourself. (laughs) Um, But thank you so much for taking time out of that busy life to talk to us today. Thanks so much, Natalie. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.